there is something unique about beauty, something unique about majesty that is consistent across cultures, across people, across time. And what's unique about beauty or something that's majestic is that it always captures attention of people, right? That whatever it is, whether it's uh, a beautiful scene, a, a beautiful painting, when you look at it, if it's truly beautiful, you don't have a, almost have a choice but to respond to it. There's something in you that says, wow, that's beautiful, okay? And for, for us, for us, the most majestic, the most beautiful of anything that is named beautiful is the Lord our God. And so when you see him, you have to respond to him because he demands that you respond to him. So if you aren't responding to him, it's not because he's not beautiful, it's because you aren't seeing him. Because beauty demands a response. Beauty demands a response. So as we, as we dive into this passage, I almost, I almost want you to, to, to sit and just gaze at the majesty and the power of who God is. I want us to have one of those wow moments as we get into this passage, because that's really what this passage is about. And I know that might be a little hard for us because we, we, are, we, we, we are a studious people. We are a studious church. We, we got the concordance and the Bible dictionary and the commentary. We got it all. We got logos on our tablets and everything, right? We like to study, and that's okay. The word of God does tell us to study to show ourselves approved. That, that, nothing wrong with that. But every now and again, every now and again, you just need to just come to the scriptures just because you want to see Jesus. Just, just to feast on the beauty of who he is. Just to, just to step back and say, this is my God and I delight in him. And so I'm going to call you into that. I'm not going to have any points, but I'm going to have a purpose. And that purpose is for you to see Jesus. To see him as he is high and lifted up. Amen? So can we do that together? So I'm going to ask for a little grace. Just come along with me. And at the end, I'll, I'll give you a couple applications. Okay? And the, 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 the biblical justification for this, for what I'm going to ask you to do, comes out of 2 Corinthians. Because 2 Corinthians 3.18 says something amazing. I think we, we don't often talk enough. It says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, right? Simply the, the, the simple act of just looking at Jesus, just beholding who he is, changes you, transforms you, renews you, right? And so what I'm calling you into, and what, what's happening in this passage, and it's truth of the text, What's happening in this passage is that Paul, he's, he's writing a letter, right? He, he's communicating to a church. He might be sitting, they can imagine him penning it out. Then he gets to this point where he just, he can't, he can't keep going. He just has to stop because something grabs his attention. The beauty of God grabs his attention. He just, he breaks, it, it interrupts what he's saying. And he just cries out. He says, oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. He sees the beauty of God and he can't have but respond. Okay, and so I want to give you a little bit of background. How did he get here? What, what is it that has so captured Paul at this particular moment in scripture that he, he just can't continue? He just has to break out in praise towards the Lord. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background on the book of Romans, just for, in case you might not have that background. So the, the Roman church, 
was maybe looked a little bit like this. We got a lot of different types of people, different ages, different backgrounds, socioeconomic, whatever, right? Some people who may have grown up in the church, some people who don't know what the word church means, right? New and old. And the Roman church was a little bit like that. It was a mix, a polyglot of people. But you had two major groups. On one hand, you had the church folk, the Jews, right? From, from, they were, from, from, they were, from they were young, they had grown up hearing about the Lord, hearing the stories about Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, hearing about the law, participating in Passover, right? God was not strange to them. He was very familiar. And because of that familiarity, when they became Christians, they had particular struggles, particular issues, just like old church folk have some struggles because you, you bring your baggage from your old church life into, the, into, into a new relationship with the Lord. And so their particular struggles were, well, if we know the law, then we are better than those who don't know the law. If we know and practice the law, then we, should, we are made righteous by that law, right? Those are their, their struggles. But on the other hand, you had this other group. You had the Gentiles, the Greeks, who didn't know anything about God, the law, Abraham, none of that. Maybe you've heard about it, but don't really know it, right? And so they had come into the faith. They had come into the church. And their particular struggles were, well... If I am not knowing anything about this law, not knowing anything about these patriarchs, these great men of old, and yet I am in now standing in the same place with the same access to God as those folk, then what's wrong with them? Because they had more information. They had, they had, since they were kids, circumcised on the eighth day, right? When they were babies, they, they've heard about this stuff. I just heard about it, and now I'm in the same place they are. What's wrong with them? Maybe God has forsaken them and replaced them with me. So you have these two groups, and so Paul, for the first 11 chapters or so, are dealing with these groups. And so he starts off with the Jews, and he starts to address some of their, their issues, right? And so he points out to them, he said, you are not more righteous than anybody else. All are equally sinners. All have sinned and fallen short. He, he points out to them in Romans 3.20, he says, the law does not lead to righteousness. By works of the law, no one, no one will be justified, right? He says all are equally justified by the grace of God. In chapter 4, he talks about the nature of faith. He uses Abraham as an example, saying, even Abraham that you look up to came to know the Lord through faith. It had nothing to do with, with, with work, with striving. And so he's dealing with the issues of the Jews. He talks in chapter 5 about the free gift of grace. In chapter 6 and 7, he talks about how this faith results in righteousness. So not the law leading to righteousness, but faith leading to righteousness. In chapter 8, he talks about the freedom that is in the gospel. And so through all these chapters, he's talking to both groups, but primarily addressing the issues of the church folk those who have grown up and, and heard about the law, and because of that have a certain pride. But then around chapter 9, he starts to switch a little bit. And he said, this group, you got some issues too, and I want to start talking to you. Because they had grown up very proud. And, and it's, it's a little understandable, because think about it, right? If you had just got out of school and you joined a new job, joined a new company, right? Don't know anything about anything. First day on the job, and you talk to somebody who's been there for 20 years, who's been there all their life, right, gray-haired and grown up at that company, and they tell you, they ask, how much do you make? How much are they paying you? And they're like, oh, you know, they're paying me this. And, and they say, well, but that's, that's the same thing I'm making. Say, oh. 
So you've been here for 20 years doing all this work, and they hire me, and I'm, I'm, I'm the same salary as you? Hmm. Two things. Either I'm something special, <laughs> right? I, I must be bringing something, because 20 years, no years, same salary. Hmm. Or something wrong with you, <laughs> right? They don't, you must not be doing a good job. That's the issue, that's how the Gentiles were thinking. Right? I come into the church, come into, the, into, the, into this body, and I have the same access. I can go to the same God. I can pray the same prayers. I can, I can be in the same offices. What's wrong with you? All that knowledge, all that law. So in chapter 9, Paul starts to say, hold on now. Hold on. So listen, listen to what he says in chapter 9, verse 4 talking to the, to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. He says, they, speaking about the Jews, are Israelites, right? And to them, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And so he's saying, humble yourself. Don't forget who you are. Recognize what God has done in the people who have come before you. Right? Humble yourself. Okay? But to both of them, to both of them, both the people who grown up in the church and know the law and know all the songs, and to the people who are completely new, don't know anything, never heard the word gospel, Right? To both of them, he says something interesting. In chapter 9, verse 16, he says, It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Your law does not help you. The fact that, that you don't know anything doesn't help you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your position. It doesn't matter whether you know a lot or you don't know anything. It depends not on human will or, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. All of you are absolutely equal in that you have to look to the great God to save you. You add nothing, not one iota, not one drop, not one contribution to your salvation. He is the great hero, and you are ever the, the one who is saved. All of you are dependent, utterly and completely, and without excuse on Jesus to save. It depends not on human will or, ex or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so he has dealt with the church folk. He's dealt with the new folk. And he's pointed them both back to the reality of who God is and the fact that he is the one who saves. And then he just can't help himself. Because after having gazed into the beauty and the majesty of what God has done in the gospel to save everybody, he says, oh, the depth, oh, the depth, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of this Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him? that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And so he just can't help himself because when you see Jesus, when you see beauty, 
When you see majesty, you just got to respond. And so he just has to lift his voice and say, oh, I, I want to keep going. I want to keep teaching. But I just got to look at Jesus and say, and say, oh, the depth of the riches of you, Lord. I got to praise you. Because when you see Jesus, you just, just got to respond. The majesty of God in the gospel. But what about this depth? What does he mean by this depth? He starts off by saying, oh, the depth. This depth speaks to a great abundance, a, a great, it, there's almost no word to describe it. Depth is, is, is just the closest thing. You, you can imagine a, a great vastness, a, a great space that you, you can't see across. If you tried to dive into it, you would never hit bottom. If you went up, you would never hit the top. It, it, it's, just, it's just a great depth. That's just the best word he can come up with, right? He's just saying God is just so massive that the only thing I can say is deep. Just, just deep. There's no, no boundaries, no limitations, no container can contain him. No space can hold him. He's just deep. Oh, the depth, he says. But then he's, he applies this depth to certain things. He says, oh, the depth of the riches. And I want to park here for a little bit. Because you might think riches, does, does he mean God is, is, is rich, like materially rich? We know God is rich, right? Is that what he's talking about? Is he saying God has a fat bank account? Not really. because it, It's bigger than that. Because if you flip back to um, chapter 11, verse 12, right? He talks about how God has, in a sense, set used the fact that the Jews rebelled against him to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And he says something interesting. He says, now, if their trespass, speaking about the Jews, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion meet? So what he's saying is, when he uses this word riches, he's not talking about material wealth, though that can be included in it. What he's saying is the, the, the abundance of salvation and mercy and grace that God has poured out on all, his, on all his people. He's saying that this, this mercy, this, 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 this wellspring of love and grace and forgiveness is deep. It is massive. It is uncontainable. There is nothing that can draw it down. You can, everybody can pull from it, and yet it would never, be, never go lower. Right? He's saying it's deep, uncontainable. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Lord upholds the universe by the world of his power. What that points to is the fact that every single thing that is not God draws from God to sustain itself, right? And so what he, imagine that. Imagine if someone was just pulling on you and pulling on you and pulling on you. You would get tired. But with God, this abundance is so deep, so uncontainable that he, he sustains and sustains and sustains, but he never changes. He, never, he changes not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's just deep. His abundance is so rich that he can sustain billions and never decrease, never need a nap, never need to be replenished, never to have anybody pour into him, never have anyone add to him. Deep are his riches. His pool of resources will never know a end. He is rich, rich. Oh, the depth of the riches of God. His riches poured out to us in salvation. Poured out. Whatever your needs, he can provide. If you need money, he got that. 
If you need emotional support, he has that. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, He is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. Whatever you're going through, you can come and draw from him. Because his abundance is deep. It has knows no end. His comfort is everlasting. He never gets tired of hearing about your troubles. Hebrews 4.16 says, We can come boldly to the throne of grace because he is always on it. He never steps off. He never says, I just can't, I can't hear their troubles anymore. He has an abundance of riches and mercy that he continually pours out for you. It's continually available to you. Deep are his riches. Hebrews 7.25 said he's able to save to the uttermost. There is no aspect of your salvation that he leaves untouched or leaves undone. He completely out of the abundance of his riches accomplishes everything everything. There is nothing left to do. And yet he is not diminished. He is not changed. He, grow, he does not grow weary. Abundant are his riches. He not only saves, but he keeps on saving out of his great riches. Great are his riches. It is he and he alone that, desire, that, that saves us. Oh, the depth, oh, the depth of his riches. But he goes on, he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. What does it mean for God's wisdom to be deep? Now, wisdom is, is not, when we think wisdom, we often think, oh, there's some guy in a, you know, an ivy tower somewhere writing some big fat books. That's not what, the, biblically, that's not what wisdom looks like. Wisdom is a very practical term in scripture. It's not just knowing what to do, it's demonstrated results that are perfect, okay? Not just knowing I should do this, but knowing that and doing it perfectly. That's wisdom, right? Jesus in Matthew eleven nineteen he says, wisdom is justified by her deeds, right? That wisdom, the way you know whether wisdom is there is by looking at the actions, the outcomes, what results from it, right? Wisdom and deeds are intimately tied together. It's a very practical term in scripture. And so when, when, when he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God, what he's saying is that God's actions are the standard of wisdom. That when God acts, wisdom is a shown off. That, that, that by, his def by definition, the things that he does are wise. Because he does everything perfectly. And so there is deep, there is uncontainable wisdom in God because he always does everything well. Proverbs 8.21 says that the Lord possessed wisdom from the first of his acts of old. He's saying from the very moment that God took an action, wisdom was shown off. Because, because the, the, he, he has never done anything that was not wise. In fact, the way we know what wisdom is by looking at what he has done. Right? He is, to make it plain for you, he's the greatest scholar and the greatest man of action. He's the greatest strategist and the greatest soldier. He's the greatest songwriter and the greatest singer. The greatest coach and the greatest player. The greatest author and the greatest character. He is wise, deep is his wisdom. And there is none like him. Never has he lost a battle. Never does he have to wonder what should I do. 
Never has he known confusion. He is wise in every way and at every time. And you can always count on him to be wise, to act perfectly. He says, behold, I do all things well. Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, which one of you can convict me of sin? Is there any imperfection in me? No. Perfection. Absolute wisdom. Deep. Deep are the riches and wisdom of God. But not only is he abundant in mercy, abundant in wisdom, but he sees all and knows all. Because he, he goes on to say, the, the deep is the knowledge of God. His is a knowledge of all the facts. He always makes his decisions on the right information. Job said of him, Sheol, speaking of hell, is naked before him. There is the highest of heights, the deepest of depths. God sees everything. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing is outside his perception. He knows every fact about everything at every time. Every word in every language he knows. He doesn't have to Google. He doesn't have to study. He doesn't have to go to a library. He just knows. Deep is his knowledge. Every thought that has ever been thought or ever will be thought, he knows. Though it's never spoken or never written down, he knows. Nothing evades his perception. His knowledge is deep. David says in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Everywhere he is, everything he sees. He knows the secrets of the heart, Psalm 44 says. 1 Samuel 16 says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Proverbs 5.21, a, man, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. Nothing evades his perception. He knows all. So what does this mean in the context of salvation? That's what he's talking about. That's what he's, he's celebrating. It means God didn't make a mistake. He didn't accidentally think, I think these people look all right. Let me save them. He knows you intimately. When you think, I'm done doing okay, I'm not a sinner, he knows that you are. And yet, yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His knowledge is perfect, but the riches of his mercy, the riches of his mercy, he still saves. He, he's not like a, a guy you met and you, and you go out on a date and you're like, oh, you know, let me dress myself up and look all nice. And he might think I'm something I'm not. Or the guys do the same thing, right? You get a new suit or new slacks or whatever, put on some cologne, pretend like you're something you're not. And you might trick somebody for a little bit. They're going to find out eventually. <laughs> but from the very moment... Before you even existed, God knew exactly, he knew all your junk. And yet he still loves you. Deep are his riches. The wisdom and the knowledge of God. You see how great this God is? You see why Paul, when he, when he gets to this moment, he just can't help himself but cry out, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. But then he goes on to say, he says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God's judgments in this context most likely speaks to his judgments in, 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 in salvation. He, he, his decisions about who will be saved and who won't be saved. right? And what he's saying is his judgments, his, his weighing of things, his, the, the way he makes his, the call, it's not something that we can access. It's not something that we can search out. It's, it's inscrutable to us. All of us are therefore equal before him. 
We are all dependent on him. We all have to be humble before him and saying, you are the Lord. You decide, and we don't. And furthermore, furthermore, later on he says, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? There is nothing I can do to influence your decision. I can't, you don't owe me anything because I am utterly and completely dependent on you, right? And so how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. But it's not just a matter of he's just more powerful than us. It's not, it's not just a matter of scale, right? It's not like a computer can compute things faster than you. That's not what he's talking about. Because God is not just, just bigger than us. We're not little versions of him. and You scale us up and we get to where he is. There is a difference of category, right? He is categorically different than who we are. There is no mingling, right, between the creation and the creator. He is completely and wholly and utterly set apart. He does not, when he makes, in fact, when he makes judgments or decisions, it's not like we make. We, we ponder and consider and think and reflect. He just decides. He, he doesn't have to weigh his options. He doesn't have to think about it. And, and get me get some advice. Let me talk to my girlfriend and, and let me call my mom. He just does. He perfectly executes his plan. He doesn't read self-help books. He doesn't have new ideas. Oh, I never thought of that before. He is on, he's completely unlike us. He says to us, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Recognize who I am and who you are. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He is categorically different from us. 1 Timothy 6.15 describes him as the God who dwells in unapproachable light. You can't just walk up on him. Right? He is set apart from who we are. Not just physically, because I, I think that, that's primarily talk about the, the, the physical dwelling presence of God, but even mentally. You can't follow his logic, right? You can't get into his mind and look through his eyes. Okay, that's why he did it that way. You have to stand back and cry out and say, unsearchable are your judgments. Inscrutable are your ways. And so if you, if you ever thought that you were smart, humble yourself today. Humble yourself before the great mind of God, the great majesty of his ways the great power of his judgments. You are not him. He is God and he is God alone. Adam, in his perfection, could not approach God. If God had not revealed himself, there was nothing he could have done to draw near to him. He is completely set apart from us. We are utterly and completely dependent on him. But that's good news. Because though we can't know his mind, Though we can't know his ways, we can know his character. We can know his heart. He says, I'm the God that sticks closer than a brother. He says, I'm the God who is a father to the fatherless. He said, I'm the God who is love. I'm the God who draws near to you. We can't know his mind, but we can know his character. And so he says, he says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? What we can never do to him, we can never know his mind. We can never give him counsel. We can never give him any gift that doesn't first come from him. But what we can't do for him, 
he does for us. For though we can't know his mind, 1 Corinthians 2.10 says, the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, and reveals them to us. So what we can't know, he provides, he reveals. We can never be his counsel, never give him advice. But I heard Isaiah say, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And so if you need some advice, I got somebody for you, and his name is Jesus. He's a wonderful counselor. Whatever you need, he got. None can ever give him a gift. But I heard scripture say, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. And so if you need a gift, he has one for you, and his name is Jesus. What we can't do for him, he does for us. What we can never do, he does. What we can never accomplish, he accomplishes. There's no one like him. Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth. Oh, the depth of his riches. Who is like him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. He is the great initiator from him. He is the great accomplisher through him. He is the ultimate purpose to him. There's nobody like him. Nobody like him. He is always the hero. And we are always the saved. He is always the great shepherd. We are always the weak lambs. Ultimately and absolutely, there is no one like him. There is no narrative, no universe where we save ourselves or add anything to him. It is always and completely and utterly dependent on him. To him be glory forever. To him be glory forever. To him be glory forever. If you, don't, if, if you haven't heard me, to him be glory forever. Behold our God, worthy is he of our worship. And so like Paul, we just, sometimes you just got to stop and look, stop and gaze, stop and enjoy and be amazed at the beauty of Jesus, the majesty of this great God who owed us nothing but gave us everything. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of our God. Great is he. Great is he. Amen. And amen. So what does this mean for how we should live? Because his riches are deep, we can trust him to meet all our needs. Because his wisdom is deep, we can run to him when we need advice and take counsel from our wonderful counselor. There is no more wonderful a counselor than Jesus. Because he does all things well, we can trust him ever to be victorious, to fight our battles. Because his knowledge is deep, he knows our needs and he cares for us. Because his judgments are unsearchable and his ways inscrutable, we have to be humble before him. We can't make assumptions about who is saved and who is not. We have to be grateful because he owed us nothing, but he gives everything. And because it's all about him and not about us, hear the words of Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present yourself in response, having seen and been captured and been enraptured by the beauty of this great God. Respond to him, not just by gazing, but by presenting yourself and say, I worship you with all that I am and all that I ever shall be. I offer my worship to you. To that, he calls you. To that, he calls you. Let that be your great delight. Let him be your great treasure. Have no other God before him. 